Junk science, shoddy investigations, and law enforcement misconduct are only some of the reasons innocent people can find themselves wrongfully convicted and locked up for life or even sentenced to death. The American criminal justice system needs reform. Our rate of incarceration is higher than any other country in the world. Some studies estimate there are 230,000 innocent people in prison right now. From Campfire and ACAST Studios comes a new 10-episode podcast series that tells real-life stories of abuses of power in our criminal justice system that sometimes reflect incompetence but often involve intentional wrongdoing. The abuses rarely, if ever, result in adverse consequences for the government officials who are responsible, but can steal decades of time from the very people the criminal justice system is supposed to protect. I'm Sonia Pfeiffer. And I'm David Rudolph. As criminal defense and civil rights attorneys, we fight these abuses of power in our practice and also in this podcast by educating our listeners on how to protect themselves and advocate for others. Search for Abuse of Power with David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the first episode out right now. Hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. To get you started, here's a clip from Episode 1, The State of North Carolina versus Tim Bridges. On Mother's Day, 1989, 83-year-old Modine Wise was brutally attacked and raped inside her home in Charlotte, North Carolina. The next day, Wise was discovered by her sister-in-law, Virginia, who immediately called police. When officers arrived, they found an array of evidence left behind by the perpetrator. A men's coat, a cigarette butt, a dirty towel, and a bloody palm print on the wall above the bed where Modine Wise was raped. But for months, the investigation sputtered. No matches to the palm print, no hot leads from the other pieces of evidence. The case seemed to go cold. Then, a tip came in from a police informant naming 23-year-old Tim Bridges. Tim, a former drug addict and male prostitute who had just gotten out of rehab, was arrested. He would be wrongfully convicted of the horrendous crime and sentenced to life in prison. In Tim's case, a range of police abuses, from withheld exculpatory evidence to the use of unreliable informants, contributed to his conviction. However, it was the fabricated report of an FBI-trained hair analyst that would imprison Tim for 26 years. David and I joined Tim's legal team in 2016, so David will walk us through the facts of the case. Later, you'll hear from Tim himself as he talks about the emotional toll that the justice system has cost him and the irreparable losses he suffered. David, let's talk about the evidence left at the crime scene. To start, there was a large men's jacket left by the bed. There were a pair of men's socks left in the bathroom. There was a pack of Salem cigarettes found near the bed where she was raped. And there were a pair of glasses left on the television set right in that same room. But the most prominent piece of evidence was a palm print in dried blood. It was right near a light switch above the bed where Modine was raped. That palm print was like a flashing red light for the investigators. If it wasn't Modine Wise's print, 
it had to be the perpetrators. You know, most people recognize that fingerprints left at a crime scene are a pretty good piece of evidence for helping to identify a perpetrator. But palm prints can also be really important to an investigation. I've seen some studies that have found palm prints are actually a more reliable piece of evidence than fingerprints. And interestingly, law enforcement agencies estimate that about a third of crime scene prints are actually from palms. But Sonia, you know, palm print databases were really pretty non-existent until 2000. So in 1989, when police lifted that palm print from Modine Wise's wall, in order to match it to a perp, they needed a physical print from a potential suspect to conduct a comparison. They couldn't just run it against a database. In order to identify potential suspects for palm print comparisons, police used the description that Modine Wise gave of her attacker. She described a young man in his late teens, 5'8 to 5'10, with sandy blonde or light brown hair. While vague, she was confident that she could pick her attacker out of a lineup. The description fit about 100 young males with criminal convictions for sexually related offenses, including male prostitutes who frequented the area she lived in. Once police identified this large group, they then contacted each suspect and asked each person to come into the police station to take their palm print. The prints of approximately 50 young men, including Tim Bridges and his brother, were taken and sent to the crime lab for analysis none matched the palm print found on the wall, including Tim's. So with Tim excluded as a suspect initially, how was it that police came back around to him? Well, it was about three months after the crime occurred, and 16-year-old Matt Donaldson, uh, one of Tim's acquaintances, he was a drug user and a male prostitute who ran with Tim, He came home high one night and told his father that he had heard that Tim was involved in the crime. That information was then provided to the police by Matt's father, and that apparently was all the police needed to turn their focus entirely to Tim. The police arrest him, and and they take the case to the DA. But the DA is really not satisfied. She tells the investigators... These informants are just not credible, and you guys need more evidence if we're going to proceed with the case. Now, the police already know Tim's palm print doesn't match the bloody palm print on the wall. So they decide to focus on all the other evidence left at the scene to see if they can find something, anything, that would incriminate Tim. When Tim was arrested, he told investigators, quote, I am going to do everything I can to prove my innocence. He answered questions, offered to take a polygraph, voluntarily provided saliva for analysis, and hair for comparison to hairs found on the items left at the crime scene. Despite all of this, Tim wouldn't see the outside world for 26 more years. I was trying to get my life straight. I really was. I stayed away from the streets. I was trying to get a job. What was going through your head when you realized officers were trying to pin this on you? I started crying because uh, I would just got out of jail. Here I am getting arrested for something I didn't do. I mean, you know, they started questioning, talking about, 
well, what if you did and you don't remember and this, that, and other? And, you know, and I was already crying and upset. And I said, what if I didn't? And I don't remember. Are you crazy? I would remember something like that. So I I didn't want to go back to jail. But I did. And I didn't get out for a while. Oh, it's hard to this day. Oh, y'all gonna have me blowing my nose up. Still, you know, I got PTSD. I mean, it's hard, really. I struggle every day to get out here and live the way I'm supposed to be living because I'm still not used to it. It's hard. I was put in jail March 27, 1990. I never left the jailhouse. March 27, 1990, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that date. Tim Bridges did finally get out of prison. To find out how, listen to episode one of Abuse of Power with David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer, out now. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can check out all of the upcoming episodes at abusivepowerpodcast.com. If you or a loved one believe you have been wronged by the criminal justice system, please submit your story at the link on our website.